A railway station? Uh, uh, bear with me. At this point in time, the enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma. Either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a means of escape. How have we accomplished such a thing? Here. Notice the wares of this bookseller. You see the title? Romance. Passion. Intrigues. We have used poets and novelists to persuade the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience which they call being in love is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. <laughs> How amusing. Yes. The whole philosophy of hell rests on the recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. These are basic facts. To us, yes. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more or less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does, and even all he is or claims to be. Thus he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. I'm sorry, Uncle, but I don't understand what this has to do with sex. The enemy's real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction amongst humans is only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It might have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is, indeed, among the spiders, where the bride concludes her nuptials by eating her groom. Yes, I enjoy that part. <laughs> but in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously connected affection between the parties with sexual desire. 
He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse where the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now comes the joke. The enemy described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple or a couple who married because they were in love, but you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they call uh, Saint Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation for him makes one flesh. Right, and the, the point is? The point. Isn't it obvious? You can get the humans to accept as rhetorical eulogies of being in love what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. Hmm. The truth is, wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them. This relation must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Uh, right. From the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce affection and the family, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. The error is easy to produce because being in love does very often in Western Europe precede marriages which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs, that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill, just as religious emotion very often but not always attends conversion. In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as its result. I see. Sort of. Uh, but, but what exactly is the advantage of this effort? Uh, there are two advantages. In the first place, humans who have not the gift of self-control can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. Do they really believe that? They do. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for the preservation of chastity and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. <laughs> In the second place, any sexual infatuation, whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love. And love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences of marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. But this business of the humans being in love, is that desirable or not? Really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see? There is no answer. Oh. Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. 
though there are advantages in making the patient decide that love is good or bad. Oh, how so? Well, if he is an arrogant man with a contempt for the body really based on delicacy, but mistaken by him for purity and one who takes pleasure in flouting what most of his fellows approve, by all means, let him decide against love. Instill into him an overweening asceticism, and then, when you have separated his sexuality from all that might humanize it, weigh in on him with it in a much more brutal and cynical form. If, on the other hand, he is an emotional, gullible man, feed him on minor poets and fifth-rate novelists of the old school until you have made him believe that love is both irresistible and somehow intrinsically meritorious. This belief is not much help, I grant you, in producing casual unchastity, but it is an incomparable recipe for prolonged, noble, romantic, tragic adulteries that end, if all goes well, in murders and suicides. <laughs> Failing that, it can be used to steer the patient into a useful marriage. Oh? Well, there must be several young women in your patient's neighborhood who would render the Christian life intensely difficult to him if only you could persuade him to marry one of them. Please send me a report on this. Yes, sir. In the meantime, get it quite clear in your own mind that this state of falling in love is not itself necessarily favorable either to us or to the other side. It is simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Like most of the other things which humans are excited about, such as health and sickness, age and youth or war and peace, it is, from the point of view of the spiritual life, mainly raw material. Got it? Yes, Uncle.